capitalists in the restaurant industry have gotten very, very rich off a business model based on the ruthless exploitation of workers. Is it any wonder now, after all the abuses that took place over the course of the pandemic, that workers prefer to find jobs elsewhere? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Deepening unemployment, a looming wave of evictions, massive and widening inequality. There's no denying it. Capitalism is in crisis and capitalism is the crisis. We are very excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us again for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class and the crimes of big business. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today. If you rely on this show, if you enjoy listening to the show, please show your support. Richard Wolf is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He is the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. Thank you for joining once again. This is an article in the Wall Street Journal about restaurant workers while they're in high demand right now because a lot of them don't want to come back to work partly the government and the wall street journal is blaming their excessive benefits that they received from the expansion of unemployment benefits others um, say well look can you blame people i mean who wants to actually work in the restaurant business when there's a fierce campaign against unions and as a consequence wages besides tips for the most part are like under $3 an hour. Then we have people like Joe Manchin and Kirsten Cinema and some other Democrats who made sure to block the minimum wage bill when it came before the Senate recently. And then they were the headliners, Richard, at the Restaurant Lobbying Association. I don't know why they chose them, but somehow they were the headliners by the organization that's been lobbying against unions in restaurants and bars. And as a consequence, workers' wages suck. I mean, workers are super overworked and work for very little. Perhaps you get a good job, a good shift. Perhaps your tips are good sometimes. But for most workers, not so much. Yeah, I think if you take a step back, you'll understand exactly what's going on here. There are industries that don't care about the minimum wage because they already pay much more than that. And so they're not going to be much affected by whether the minimum wage is seven and a quarter or $15. They're in a different range. And so they don't care. They are not going to be lobbying hard one way or the other. At the other extreme are those industries that really 
don't want to pay more than seven, eight, nine, ten dollars an hour because that's how they become rich, that's how they profit, and they fight very hard. And one of those groups is the restaurant association. It can get away with paying very low wages, partly because it uses an inordinately large proportion of immigrants who come from places where wages are even lower and therefore are willing, at least for a while, to accept lower wages than natives might accept. And I'm talking both about documented and undocumented immigrants who are very often horribly treated by restaurants where they are worked very hard and, as I say, paid very little. And so you can see that. And the Restaurant Association is, of course, going to celebrate those two Democratic senators because in a closely divided Senate, they can hold up, as they were able to do, the increase in the minimum wage that is so long overdue. But I want to take a bigger step back and look at another way of seeing this. Every four to seven years, a capitalist system crashes. That's been true for 300 years. Nothing that the capitalist system has tried has prevented these crashes from continuing. The business cycle is part of capitalism as much today as it ever was. That's why we're going through one now. The last big disastrous one was in 2008 and 9, as everyone knows. So if the average is four to seven years, let's take the seven years after 2008 or 9, we were due for the next crash around 2016. It's an average, so of course it doesn't have to happen four to seven years. And this one waited until 2020, four years later. But there is a general rule that if it takes longer for the next one to come than the average, then there's a pretty heavy likelihood it'll be worse than average when it turns down. And boy, this one was, and that would have been the case whether or not there was a pandemic, but the pandemic made it worse. But we know that these cycles happen. They have happened every four to seven years. We had one in 2000 the so-called dot-com one. We had the one in 2008 or 9, and now we have one in 2020. 20 years, three crises. Yep, the average is about seven. Knowing that, you could have and you should have had in place a whole set of programs to deal with this crazy system's instability, these four to seven-year crashes. Instead, what you have here in the United States is kind of shock. Oh my goodness, an economic downturn, as if it was a surprise, as if it was something we couldn't plan for, but we could have, and we should have. We should have had a program to employ people laid off by this capitalist cycle. The government could have done that either at the federal level or at the state level or at the low local level. You could have had money set aside over time to make all of this available. You did none of it. All you did is say to people, oh, go to the unemployment office and sit there doing nothing. Had you planned on this, you could have found very useful social things to produce with this labor. You could have had a system in place if it was a virus. So you put those people to work 
in a socially distanced way on something useful. This is what, by the way, what we did in the 1930s. There's no excuse for not doing it now. We should have had the lesson learned in the 30s, provide a program to build daycare centers, provide a program to staff schooling. When kids were out of school, you could have commandeered all kinds of public places, for example, restaurants that were not being used, and have small classes with a teacher and three or four or five students appropriately safely placed with masks. In other words, you could have had a creative way None of that was done. And so, of course, the restaurant workers being badly paid and being overworked used the time of enforced unemployment to look for better jobs, to look for a better situation. If they were an immigrant, they might have gone back to the societies from which they had come, or they certainly looked around for a better situation. And so now the restaurant industry is complaining that, oh my goodness, it has to give a bonus to get these people back to work. Well, the reason you have to give a bonus is how you were treating these people in the first place, coupled with the failure of the society to have any kind of program for people who are unemployed by capitalism's instability. We don't have any of these things solved. And so listening to employers in restaurants complain that they have to pay a little extra to the workers that they abuse and that the system failed, well, it's not much of an appeal to me in terms of taking it seriously. In terms of strategy for workers, I'm thinking about labor strategy, union strategy, the prospects for class struggle that are advantageous. Things shift when there's a high demand for labor, when there's an economic pickup. You know, there's confusion about this in the left. Some people think, well, if things are really, really, really bad with the capitalist economy, that drives everything to the left. But from the point of view of labor organizing, when there's massive unemployment and there's lots of other workers ready to come in and take the jobs of those who are bold enough, say, to go on strike, it has a depressing impact. When we think back to the 1930s, It's when the economy started to pick up a little bit in 1934 that the general strike took place in Toledo, Ohio, or Minneapolis, Minnesota, or San Francisco. The CIO was organizing, the organizing in the South had a big upswing. Workers are selling something that's in high demand, which is their ability to work. And so the relationship of forces shifts a little bit. It would seem to me that from the point of view of the labor movement, This would be a time to put the foot on the pedal because here you have the Democrats control the Senate, the Democrats control the House, the Democrats control the White House. You have super reactionaries like Kirsten Sinema or Joe Manchin trying to, you know, function as the ultra right gatekeepers against workers. But nonetheless, the situation is such that if Chipotle, for instance, which is Now, in some cases, offering free college tuition to some employees who work at least 15 hours a week for four months on the job, it would seem to me that this should be the time where the labor movement should seize the opportunity and do massive organizing because it can't just be waiting for the Senate and the House to do the right thing and increase the minimum wage. There is the element of collective bargaining where workers strong enough 
can get contracts. And usually restaurant workers are at a huge disadvantage, but not right now. Yeah, I think you know, in my reading of the labor history, it's always a variety of causes that have to kind of come together to enable a union drive to work. It's not one or the other. In other words, yeah, under certain conditions, if the economy is going down the tube, that will stimulate workers. On the other hand, there are situations where when the economy is rising, as you put it, it'll stimulate workers. It is the collection of different forces. I mean, we do have to remember that it was during the 1930s, a period of the worst collapse of capitalism in its history, if you look at the whole period, 1929 to 1940 or 41, the period of the Great Depression, and it was the greatest unionization movement in American history. Millions of people who had never been in a union, whose parents had never been in a union, joined. They joined because the spirit of the times, the ups and downs of the economy, sure, they played their role. But beyond those ups and downs, it was a time when working people basically understood that they would have a better chance of getting through this collapse of capitalism in a union than being out of the union movement. And it was a fundamental decision. I'm going in because it's the best thing for me and all the other people in the working class around me. Over the 40 years since the end of World War II, there's been a relentless program of persuading the mass of people that the opposite is the case, that you're somehow better off out of a union than in one. And they've been able to devastatingly shrink the number of people who are in unions because they don't want to, they quit, they, they are worried about it, they, are, they find the unions demonized, whether it's you watching On the Waterfront as a movie and unions are equated to gangsters, all of the rest of it, I assume everybody listening to this program knows about this story. 80% of our listeners are under the age of 35. <laughs> so okay. so uh, they don't know about Marlon Brando and they don't know about On the Waterfront. But the point is in the middle of the 50s, in the middle of the witch hunt, including with former socialists helping to direct, unions were indeed portrayed as just really the mafia, the organized crime, and not really the representatives of the working class. Yeah, and that was a concerted effort mobilizing the business community that took the lead, the government that followed what the business community wanted, as it usually does, and you had this program. But there's also a fault here in the labor movement. The labor movement has to, on pain of its disappearing if it doesn't do this, it has to maintain an equal, if not greater, public effort to persuade people otherwise. And I have spent most of my life basically offering to the labor movement, me personally, as well as many like me, offering to the labor movement the following argument. In order for you not to be destroyed by the propaganda mountain being thrown up against you, you have to maintain an equally powerful 
movement everywhere in this culture, on the radio, on television, in the classroom, in the church, in the community group, wherever. The argument about why labor needs to bargain collectively, because if you deal with management one-on-one, they have all the cards and you will lose. And the answer the union movement usually gives is, well, we have our work cut out for us just to mobilize workers, to file the grievances they have on the job, to intercede on their behalf with the employer, to have the occasional strike, to service our members. And it's almost more than we can do now. You're asking us to add a whole nother range of activities. We don't have the money to hire people to do that. And we don't have the time and energy left from our staff to do it. And my answer has always been, of course you don't. You don't see the businessmen and women out there doing this. They have allies, political allies, staff people, hired consultants. On the left, we have an army of people who are ideologically prepared to do that kind of work, whether they are students or teachers or ministers or active in their community organizations, whoever. And therefore, you in the labor movement need an alliance. You need a coalition with the people on the left because they're the ones who are going to move out into the community and make the argument of what the society needs and why the labor movement is the way to get the social changes that we need. So if you made that alliance, you could get done that which is a counter to what the business community and the government it controls is doing to you. I never heard a refutation of what I just said. I never heard a counter argument, but it never happened because the union movement was afraid in that propaganda blizzard after World War II to make that alliance with the American left the socialists, the communists, the anarchists, and all the rest left of center folks that would have been part of that alliance and would have wanted to be part of that alliance. So to some degree, it was the entrapment of the labor movement itself in the post-World War II demonization of the left that blocked them from the kind of alliance that could have had a a counter movement in this country and that would have saved the labor movement from the 50-year decline it is now struggling to cope with. Very interesting point, Richard. And again, for our audience, I mean, in the 1930s, when the AFL split in the CIO, the Congress of Industrial Organizations, which was part of the AFL, became an independent labor federation and to the left and led by John L. Lewis, the president of the Mine Workers Union, who was an anti-communist. Lewis made an alliance, a de facto alliance with the Communist Party and with other socialist groups, but in particular the Communist Party because it was larger, and hired and put on the CIO staff hundreds, perhaps thousands of predominantly young working class members of the Communist Party 
who became the real organizers, who had the devotion, the commitment, who weren't really looking simply for a contract. They were trying to advance the cause of the working class in general. And the gains were monumental. So I agree with you. And even if you look at labor literature from the 30s or the labor literature that came later about, say, the Flint sit-down strike and so on and so forth, the tacit alliance between even the non-communist or anti-communist labor leadership that was at least militant, like John L. Lewis, with socialists and with communists, with leftists, you're right, it did make a profound difference. Yeah, and breaking that alliance after the war, smashing up the old New Deal coalition of labor and the left, this was absolutely central to the strategy of the reaction that set in after World War II. And it was successful. It knew, as everybody who's ever broken up in a coalition knows, you go after the weakest link first. And they went after the Communist Party first and portrayed them not as the labor militants they had in fact been as their major activity, but redesigned them, rebranded them, if you like, as evil agents of a foreign power. A classic move to isolate and prepare the repression, which they then followed up by arresting them and imprisoning them and all the rest, and thereby terrifying, because that's what it's about. It's a kind of domestic terrorism. Every other leftist, whether they were a communist or a socialist or just a labor militant, was afraid of being treated in the way that you could see every day the communists were. So the coalition of communists, socialists, left-wing Democratic Party people, And the labor movement fractured. And the labor movement was terrified that it would come down that way on the labor movement. It never quite did, but it only didn't because the labor movement rushed to cooperate and to break that alliance and didn't understand that by breaking that alliance, they would lose the public relations contest, if you like. They would lose all of the work that those leftists, socialists, communists, and just liberally type people would be doing in the community. They wouldn't have them in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And by that time, the pressure of the anti-labor, anti-left onslaught ideological in this country had done its job and the labor movement is in the difficult situations it is in now. It can't take advantage, sadly, of the opportunities that exist, whether it's among low-income workers or immigrant workers or underpaid high-tech workers, all the different places, the university where the labor movement is having a hard time because it deals with a population whose mental frameworks have been systematically driven in an anti-labor direction. But you know, it's not too late. The labor movement that understands what I just said should be aware that the resurgence in the United States over the last five or six years of the left whether it's in the Bernie Sanders form or the AOC form or the revival of the DSA and all the other kinds of things we see, this is a sign that that left is still big, powerful, 
Bernie did better than anyone foresaw. AOC did better than anyone foresaw. That left is there, and the labor movement needs it now more than ever. And were they to take that step, I think you could see the reemergence very quickly of a very powerful left coalition here in the United States. Yeah, I agree with you. I We saw that in Amazon, even though the Bessemer warehouse election was a defeat. There will probably be a second election. And there's lots of evaluation going on inside the union, both at the local level and the international about, quote, what went wrong. There was an on-the-ground coalition in Alabama between, it was DSA, the PSL, I think the, I don't want to get the names wrong, some other left organizations, but they were the ones going door-to-door they covered the entire area of Bessemer and there were pro-union signs everywhere. I mean, the fact that the company is so powerful and could intimidate and use illegal tactics to, you know, win the election or defeat the workers in their effort to win collective bargaining, you know, that's not unusual that workers lose. I mean, most of the time workers and the rebellion of oppressed and poor people end up in losses, but the larger and longer struggle and the lessons learned thereof become sort of the basis for what's coming next. I want to recommend to people before we go on to our next topic, Richard, that people look for the book, Wyndham Mortimer's book, Organize. It's called Organize, Boston Beacon Press. Wyndham Mortimer was the lead organizer in the Flint sit-down strike. Roger Kieran's book, The Communist Party and the Auto Workers Unions. That's Indiana University Press. Robin Kelly's book, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's an amazing book. It's called Hammer and Ho, unlike Hammer and Sickle, about the role of the CIO in Alabama and the role of the left in Alabama, something that people really don't know about. But the the left really was the leadership of both the labor movement and the black civil rights movement up until the period right after World War II. And again, these books are really important, especially for younger workers, younger organizers, younger leftists to kind of know the history of what actually came before us so that it becomes something of a compass. Anyway, let's move on to our next story, completely different side of the world and a completely different topic. But the United States, Richard, is at war against Germany. The United States is at war against Germany for daring to do something that's in Germany's own interest, which is to purchase natural gas or to receive natural gas from a nearby neighboring country that would be Russia through Nord Stream 2 pipeline. And the U.S. is going all out. First Trump, now Biden going all out to destroy this pipeline. Let's just talk about what's going on. Again, we can look at it, you know, fine-grainedly, we might say, at the details. I'll do that briefly, but then I want to take a step back and look at the larger picture. First of all, this is a pipeline to carry natural gas from Russia to Germany. Germany needs energy. It's an importer of energy. It made a decision recently to stop any reliance on atomic energy. It took the lead in the Western world doing that. It's a national commitment not to have nuclear energy. That makes it more reliant on oil and gas, 
Oil pollutes the air, contributes to global warming much more than burning gas does. So it's for them a decision to rely on gas rather than nuclear and rather than oil. And coal is out as well. So it's a major decision crucial for the future of the German economy, which is the core and most powerful economy in all of the EU, of the European continent there. This pipeline was long in the planning. It's a joint project between Germany and Russia, and you should understand it is now 90% finished. It's only the last 10% that's going to be in discussion now, and therefore not to complete the project will be an unspeakable blow to Germany's future, but also the loss of an immense amount of money already sunk into the project. Countless large corporations all across Europe have gotten contracts to do various parts of the work of this immense long pipeline that goes from Russia to Germany. Okay, the United States doesn't want this to happen. There is speculation around the world, except here in the United States, as to what the motives of the United States are. In Germany, I think it's fair to say the population there, the viewpoints are split. The predominant view, as best I can tell, is that this is simply a ploy by the United States, which wants Germany to be more dependent on gas from the United States rather than gas from the Russians. It has nothing to do with ideology. It has nothing to do with whether you like or don't like Vladimir Putin or any of the other nonsense in their view that is spewed into the press. This is a competition between the United States and anybody else. And the United States wants to throw around its weight to get what it wants. Don't finish the pipeline, waste all that money of all these other companies, and rely instead on U.S. gas exports. And the Germans won't have it. Angela Merkel and the majority of the German government has decided to pursue the project to its completion and to reject the United States' interference. The response of the United States has been to threaten sanctions not just sanctions against Russia, which they've already imposed, but they're threatening sanctions against all of the companies, many of them German, that have contracts to do various work now and in the near future on completing the pipeline. They will be punished, they will be hurt, they will be sanctioned, even though they're not doing anything illegal to anyone. This is a blatant bullying by the United States for the advantage of its own gas exports, the Germans believe. There are some Germans who will make noise about we should not strengthen Mr. Putin by being a big customer for his gas. Well, Mr. Putin has other customers for gas around the world. Russia is a major exporter globally and would be able to survive easily. But even aside from that, these are spurious extra arguments. There is a dispute, and when you have a dispute, you throw every argument you can up into the air, and I don't have the time to go through all of them. 
But that's what the issue is. The Germans are angry that they're being interfered with. The Germans are angry that they will be made to suffer economically because they do something the United States government doesn't want them to do. They remind everybody that the United States government should deal with the Americans, not be giving orders to people in other countries. The whole world would fall apart if the Germans started doing that in other countries, etc., etc. You can imagine the kinds of arguments. Bottom line, the Germans, at least so far, and this has been going on for years, it takes a long time to build pipelines like this. The Germans have steadfastly told the United States to go take a hike. And that's the big issue. In the past, the United States would not have to have even gone public about this. They would have secretly let the German government know they didn't want this, and the German government would in fear of upsetting the United States, questioning the alliance, threatening whatever the benefits the Germans got from their dealings with America, a quiet word by the ambassador over cocktails would settle the matter and the project would be canceled. That's what's important. Whatever the outcome, whatever face-saving deal the Germans and the Americans make at the end, no one should be fooled. The power of the United States in the world economy is declining. Like everything else about American capitalism, it's declining. Much of the history of the United States was riding the capitalist roller coaster on the way up. Exciting, breathtaking, profitable, progressive. But the ride down is nowhere near so much fun. The declining economic system is difficult and painful. If you want to see what it's like, look at Britain. They've been declining for the last hundred years. World War I ended the British Empire for all practical purposes. It's been a decline ever since. And the British people have had to live through step by step of this decline, denying it as long as they could, pretending to one another. The bravado around Brexit was a play acting, as if it mattered. Europe doesn't need England. England needs Europe. And the petulant breakaway was a flattery to British failure to understand that they've become a small, wet, offshore island of the continent of Europe. The United States better pay attention because we're on the down that's happening all around us. That's why we couldn't handle COVID very well. That's why the level of inequality in this country is literally dividing the country into warring, civil warring contending splits left and right. That's why the two political parties are splitting inside. New parties are emerging. And another part of that story, the inability to get the Germans to behave the way we want. That's the importance of that story. Richard, a final point. You know, it's so interesting that in the 1980s, the Soviet Union, when Russia was part of the 15 nation, 15-republic, multinational Soviet Union, led by the Communist Party of the Soviet Union, the enemy, the arch enemy of freedom, of democracy, of Western values, the sort of 
protagonist or antagonist in the long, decades-long Cold War. The Soviet Union built a pipeline to bring natural gas to Europe. And the United States went to war against it. The Soviets prevailed, which was really something because they couldn't import any any foreign technology. It was quite a technological achievement. But at the time, the whole premise was we have to stop the communists from threatening Europe. Now, the communists are gone. Putin is not a communist. And yet when you hear the rhetoric about Russia, it's almost identical the actions of the United States against Russian, not Soviet, not communist-led pipeline are presented in the same stark existential language that if this pipeline goes through, then Germany will become the puppet of the all-powerful Russia. It really, in a way, in a sort of negative way, proves that a great part of the Cold War propaganda against communism was nothing other than a presentation of naked self-interest or perceived self-interest on the part of the U.S. to keep all of these other countries in Europe, who presumably the U.S. was defending through NATO, just under the thumb of the United States. Anyway, let's have like two more minutes and get your final comments. I spend a lot of my time studying Europe. Partly that's because my parents were immigrants here to the United States. My father was French. My mother was German. I grew up speaking those languages. I mean, I was born here in Ohio in the United States, but my parents were immigrants. And I've kept that interest because I'm fluent in those languages all ever since. So I can assure you that in Europe, it has been well understood for many decades that the motives of the United States were at best, very mixed. Was there some genuine element of anti-communism? Sure, Americans were steeped in anti-communism, but it was always understood that in many, many cases, the anti-communism was a lovely ideological veneer for something much simpler, namely the lobbying by American companies to get the American government to back them up against their competitors from other parts of the world. You couldn't say that the American government is going to help these four companies win something abroad because that would look like those companies were calling the shots. It was much easier to say, no, 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 we're not interested in these particular companies who are going to make a fortune off what we're doing. Oh, no, we're interested in a very great ideological geopolitical battle with evil communism. Yeah, well, nowadays you can't say that precisely because Mr. Putin isn't a communist and China is less committed to the socialist and communist ideas today than it was at any time in its history. The bigger part of the Chinese economy today is capitalists, including many American capitalists who are crucial to their economy. But you still are seeing revving up the old Cold War rhetoric because it worked so well. And nothing is more of a sign of decline than an economy that can't come up with a new strategy to deal with a new world. It has to rely on the old strategy. Well, it worked after World War II, this Cold War saber rattling. It's not working now. And that's 
No mystery. It's because the United States doesn't have the position in the world today that it had in 1946. At that time, it could wage a global war, call it anti-communism, and everybody towed the line. Today, they can call it whatever they want. They don't have the muscle, the power, and the economic dominance that they once had. That is the most important thing for Americans to get their heads around. We are not the rising capitalist power we were for most of the 20th century. That role is now played by other countries. The United States is declining economically, and with that comes declining political power. And if all that the United States can hold on to is the dominance militarily, which it still has, although that too is slipping, then we are in very dangerous place because the history of the world shows that declining societies can sometimes make the mistake of lurching out in their upset over decline and doing things that are even more self-destructive than the decline. And again, the best example is Britain. You're declining and then you have a Brexit where you cut your ties with Europe. As already is clear, Brexit has done more damage to the British economy than to the European and more damage to the British economy than is easily imaginable would have happened if they didn't vote for Brexit. But in their upset, in their failure to recognize the decline that is in the cards for Britain now, as it has been for a century, they took drastically self-destructive steps. One can only hope that the United States learns rather than repeats that process. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. Be sure to check out a recent article that Richard had published on the website Counterpunch. It's titled Increasing Desperation as the U.S. Capitalist System Declines. You can check out his work at rdwolf.com. That's R-D-W-O-L-F-F.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Brian Becker.